Routine, status quo, fixed obsessions with societal norms and customs? Are those the things we cling to in the face of utter madness, chaos? Are they the real opiates of the masses? What do you cling to to maintain some sort of control when all else is in ruins? Is the very act of maintaining a status quo rebellion or just cowardice? Hello, and welcome to the Book Club Juxtapositions podcast, a book club where we discuss two pieces of literature and juxtapose them based on theme, plot, author style, societal norms, and basically just how the book grabs you. All of the interesting things that make for a great spoiler-filled book club discussion. Did you say spoiler-filled? Yes, I said spoiler-filled. In each episode, we will mainly focus on one of the literary pieces. With all good literature, one can't help but make comparisons and connections to other literary works and in life. In the second episode, we will examine the same ideas with the counterpiece of literature. This is just a fun way to compare and contrast two pieces of literature and have a lively discussion. This is an adult podcast intended for adult listeners, and we may use adult language. Adult language? What the hell? In this month's episodes, we will examine change. Change is an epic force in the life of Count Alexander Rostov from A Gentleman in Moscow and Guy Montag from Fahrenheit 451. Two very different protagonists, one very timeless struggle. I am Tracy May, author, multi-award-winning screenwriter, and former educator. And I'm Kimberly Andy, travel writer, winemaker, former educator, and creator of the blog Lily Pads of Curiosity. In today's episode, we will discuss the New York Times bestseller, A Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Tolls. This is a story of Count Alexander Rostov, a Russian noble sentenced to life confinement in the Metropole, a hotel for Moscow's and the world's elite for crimes against revolution. It is a beautifully told character-driven story of his existence over 30 years behind the walls. Metamorphosis, change, evolution is a timeless concept in life as well as literature. The ability to adapt and change is arguably what makes us all sentient, viable even, in evolutionary terms. The two books we are discussing this month approach change in radically different ways, but both arcs are woven beautifully and organically. It's fair to say the Count's view of the world is rigid, rooted in his nobility. I don't think that he's really rigid, just to be honest. I think that he was just kind of a victim of a circumstance. And what we're thinking about in some cases as being rigid was just his sheer way of being able to survive. It was a routine that he had some kind of control over. Mastering his circumstances, I guess what they kept saying and referring to in the book, perhaps. Kind of goes back to in the quote on page 20, he says, but imagining what might happen if one circumstance were different was the only sure route to madness. And so that's why he clung to this routine that he had is what I believed and that he had no choice. The one thing that he did have control over was his lifelong routine and the ability to be able to control when he got his hair cut, when he ate dinner, when he went to read the newspaper. All of those things were something that, yeah, it's a rigid control, but I think that it wasn't because he was so stuffy in that. I think that that was just exactly what he said. If he, if his circumstances were different, that was the only sure route to madness. And so if he wanted to keep himself from going mad under the circumstances, that's how he could do it. He, clen- he tends to cling to these ideas throughout the novel. However, he's open to exploring new things, and he even expands his scope of awareness 
when he befriends Nina and the other guests of the hotel that we meet and he meets from all over the world. So in thinking about this book in comparison to Fahrenheit 451, the one thing that just jumped off the page for me and honestly even became what the whole catalyst was for thinking about this podcast and exploring two different novels from you you would never think to explore would be the fact that he has this impetus for change and in the Count's life it is Nina and in Guy Montague's life it is Clarice so honestly what I loved about it is that these are two young women young girls that propel him and propel the two different characters to change So, I mean, they're both very different. And I think even in terms of like, for example, Clarice, it's a brief interaction. It's not very long. Um, She asked him this, just this question that just seems so simple on the outside, but she asked him, is he happy? So I guess I'm going to turn that back to you, Kimberly. Do you think the Count is happy? It depends on what part of the story you're talking about. I think that he was just extremely content, he, and he felt like he had to stay content under his circumstances in order to keep himself from going mad. But I think that as he developed the relationship with Nina, and then ultimately Sophia, I think that that is what changed him from being content to happy, because he had a purpose, and he had something that he was able to feel like he had a purpose for. And I also think that Nina took him out of his norms and the way that he, you know, he thought that after living in the hotel for four years that he knew every nook and cranny. And that, you know, one of the the quotes that I highlighted in my book was on page 56. And he says, having lived in the Metropole for four years, the Count considered himself something of an expert in the hotel. And he said that he knew that the staff by name, the services by experience, and the decorative styles of the suites by heart. But once Nina had taken him in hand, he realized what a novice he had been. Do you feel like that sometimes in your own routine in life that you feel like you know everything there is to know about the city you live in, or even your house or think about your daily routine. And then somebody comes along and says, Hey, have you eaten at this restaurant? You're like, Oh, no, never heard of it. Where is it? And you find out it's right on the corner by your house and you never noticed it. Or, you know, thinking about when you learn a new word and all of a sudden you hear it everywhere, kind of in that same way. Or sometimes to me, that kind of, you know, looking at it with new eyes will happen. We go to Comic-Con, San Diego Comic-Con every year. So being just out of the house for a week and then coming back, it you do kind of look at it with new eyes. Like you have a new appreciation for things looking at it with new eyes. And thinking about the two, I always considered Guy Montague's change to, to be so much more dramatic, so much more radical. But now kind of rethinking that looking at the same environment with new eyes, is that just as radical to you? I think, it, is it radical? Yeah, I think that it's really cool from the perspective of the Count and Nina. Because with the Count and Nina, the Count was looking at everything in the hotel inward. And she was looking at everything from the hotel outward. And I really think that when that point was brought up, and he recognized that, that that really changed the whole perspective for me. And that's when it really jumped to me that, wow, this relationship really is like uh, Guy Montag and Clarice. That's He's such an impactful statement in somebody's life. And it makes you think these are the kinds of things that you can pull out of a book and and think about changing the way you look at your own life or your interactions that you have. And how when I used to say to my kids all the time, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. 
that really is impactful. And that's what Nina and uh, Clarice did for both of for both Guy and for the Count, is they changed the way that they were looking at things. One thing that kind of bothered me, I'd, I'd have to say, is that both of them, Nina disappears, Clarice disappears. You know, the, their reasons for disappearing are shaded in, we probably can infer here that they're not good in both situations. And both of them, Guy Montag, for example, is concerned but I just think, wow, why isn't he more concerned? The Count, for example, there's concern and he, you know, he tries to find her. But it's not like this huge deal, like this girl that I helped raise that I love like my own is gone. There just wasn't that level of intensity to me about their, their being missing. That kind think, of bothered me a little bit on do you both think, parts. think maybe because it wasn't a romantic type relationship that it was more you of a daughter? You think more intense. Oh my gosh, if something happened to, you know, one of right. your children, I oh, hate to even say that, <laughs> you would, you would move heaven and earth. You're absolutely right. So I and I think though when you when I consider somebody that is stepped out of my life, it's different when I think about my children moving on to their own jobs and and marriage and um, creating their own lives as adults, that that makes it different than if it was in a romantic relationship, or you know, that that person would disappear. It's kind of something that maybe is expected. So that maybe that's why that didn't jump out to me so much in this novel that they stepped away from them because I looked at it more like they saw them as their own children and that they were just moving on with their natural progression in their life. Yeah, I think the the two environments as well are arguably dystopian environments. That was to me one of the, and I love this book. Please know that I did. I love the book. I thought the writing was amazing. My concern was really more about, I guess, author's purpose because Bradbury's writing Fahrenheit 451 to show us the dangers of censorship. He wants to show us, you know, a warning, a really prescient warning about where we could be as a society if we stop reading, that all the government has to do is let us stop and then just hop on that train. And yeah, you're right. And Clarice actually like shown the light to him that it is changing. Like it was like a slow burn, like he was a lobster in a boiling water that he didn't even recognize around him that this was changing. And she pointed out to him the, you know, um, what was all the symbolism that Clarice brought about that, you know, we symbolize to show the change that, you know, the um, sparkling in the sidewalk or yeah she was very into nature and if you read Bradbury's other work it's very much a nature versus technology type environment the house story and I'm blanking on the name right now but where the house comes alive and the the, really it's about the nature reclaiming its territory away from this technologically driven house and I think that's what he's saying with Fahrenheit is that in the end everything Fahrenheit 451 everything is destroyed everything like the phoenix is destroyed and then it will rise from the ashes and so again it's definitely more of a dramatic change so maybe that's why just Fahrenheit always resonates with me because the change is so dramatic I also think it's why they're they're character purpose as well, their character motivation, where in one way, the Count's change is much more born out of love, where Guy Montag's change isn't really born out of love. It's more born out of a needing to feel alive, needing to feel happy versus content, because well, it's can, just more can of, one be content with contentment? Well, a survival technique. Mm-hmm. And I think the two, you're right, when we compare the two, I'm thinking uh, the Count it's it's more difficult to feel, I guess, um, bad for him in his situation. Like, oh, poor you. You're trapped in this beautiful hotel. You have everything that you could possibly need around you. And you don't have any worries. You, you don't have to worry about making a living. You don't have to worry about the roof over your head. You don't have to worry about 
you know, having time to do the things that you always want to do. It's just a matter of finding enough things to fill your time with, as opposed to Guy everything's being stripped from him. He doesn't, he has a robot for a wife, basically. Everything's just so methodical. And Mildred's good at TV, though. (laughs) She definitely has the whole, it does the clown love you thing down. She's got the clown down. (laughs) Well, because she had that TV covering all the walls in her house, (laughs) and they spoke back to her. That's fine. (laughs) But I think that when you think about what's being stripped from you, would you rather... What would you rather have? Would you rather have your freedom taken away from you so that you could do anything you wanted, but you have, you're confined to living somewhere that somebody's forcing you to live? Or would you rather have all of your freedoms taken away from you in the other sense, as far as you're not allowed to read, you can't really think for yourself, everything is very robotic for you? What would you choose? I, I think you'd be more free in the hotel to, to think for yourself, to read what you want, to be friends with who you want, to feel a sense of happiness in the hotel versus being just a, a robot, but being able to go wherever you want. Would you even know you're a robot? I think Guy does know in that sense that he's a robot because he has been hiding books. So he he knows he's unhappy. I guess the fact that Clarice is able to actually, and I always want to think, hello, Clarice. (laughs) But for Clarice to be able to name it and to call it out is what is just earth shattering because he had also had that encounter with Faber. So it's not just about Clarice with him, where I think Nina is definitely more of a soul catalyst in the beginning. What do you think? Both of these Uh, main characters are strong men. I think that, you know, both of them are very intelligent. They're both strong men. And the ones that turn them around are these young girls. What is it about that, that that perspective, that complete polar opposite perspective is what changes their entire outlook of their actual entire being or purpose in life? For the Count, his whole world is marked and formed by these really strong women, which I absolutely loved. And I definitely think that is one of the best pieces of the novel is that even though he's a male protagonist, all of the important people in his life are, are women or most of the important people in his life are women. Where I think with Guy, you know, he's he's surrounded with Mildred as the, you know, bad choice, I guess, in a way. Mildred as the what not to do type of situation. But he's also got favorites and more in an eclectic mix. You know, even though he has Clarice... The seeds were there. I agree. I, I think that um, I think that the seeds were kind of there for both of them in a way because that was their natural tendency to to turn to them. The count had other friends, but not ones that made him legitimately take a step back and go, "Wow, I'm really seeing things differently now." I think for me, if I was stuck in that environment, if you'd have said to me, "Tracy, you have to stay in your house all week, and you've got all the food you want to eat, and <laughs> there's would, wine," you would be happy. I would be doing a happy dance. But I guess it. Because I can leave. Then you throw in there, no, you can't leave. That puts a whole other angle on it. What bothered me again, and I will say this again, I love the book. The writing was just gorgeous. And the character was so well developed. And really, honestly, this stable force in life for all of these people, like he, you know, they were all swirling around him. And he was their 
anchor to keep everybody grounded and feeling like they knew their place in the world in this chaotic dystopia. But you open those doors out into Moscow at this time. And I have a serious obsession with Russian history and Soviet Russia. But if you think about opening those doors, there was a um, basically people were dying right and left. There were thousands of people being sent off to work camps, people being executed for being enemies of the state. So for him, and I know that this was not the author's purpose. The author's purpose was not to show us the horrors of Stalinism or the horrors of the Great Purge. But it's really hard not to think about, did the Count know what was going on outside those doors? There are people coming in and out. You would imagine that some of the conversation that they had in this hotel would have been about what's going on. There were Westerners that were coming in and out of this hotel. They may have been afraid to talk about things because you could imagine everything you said was being recorded or being watched. Yeah, because I don't remember any um, any parts of the book where any guests that came in shared with him anything that was going on outside of those walls. And he didn't seek to find out what was going outside those walls. He, I don't think he questioned them about those types of things. And Was he reading the newspaper? I don't remember in the novel. Did I, I they ever he, talk about him reading the newspaper? Yeah, every morning he would go down and read the newspaper in the lobby um, and have his coffee, I believe. And so, so clearly it was probably the Pravda where, you know, that Stalin was like the greatest guy ever. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. What did they call him? Like a gardener of human happiness. So... You know, he's getting that and and he's a smart man. So you know that he knows a lot of what's being told isn't right. So here's my question. Is it easier to accept the fact that there's chaos and killing and murder going on right outside those doors? But because the novel doesn't even broach that, is it easier to accept the fact that the Count doesn't seek to make that kind of massive political change where he does have that he has the ear of a lot of people with power yet that it does not even come about until he has a personal reason to want to make change i don't think that he feels like that he has the power to maybe i'm thinking of when you know they snuck up onto the balcony or you know out and they could listen in on the meetings that were happening with the you know the heads that would come in there i think he knew some things how much he knew i don't know i don't know if you know i don't know if it was was easy. You're asking, was it easier for him? Because was it was... easier for us as readers to accept his inaction because the novel really didn't get into the, yeah, you know, the great terror outside the door? Well, since the novel didn't point it out, then it wasn't obvious to us as the reader that that's what was going on. So therefore, it was easier to not think that he uh, that it was even his place to have anything or that he even had any control. I mean, the man didn't have any control about even leaving, walking out those doors or he would be shot. So I, I without getting political at current times, we could all say that we could all say we know there's a lot of things going on around this world and even in our country right now that what's being done with that. And what are our what are we doing? That? What are our actions? With right. That? There's an and I'm going to paraphrase it. I'm not I don't have it in front of me. But there's a line in the book about, you know, you're judging history from a comfortable armchair. Yeah. So is it fair to judge his actions when, you know, look in the mirror kind of a situation? Yeah, no, I get that. That's really a powerful point. Actually. And I kind of think, too, I mean, in comparison, looking at Guy, Guy saw firsthand he was going and helping. He was doing it. He, he was, was doing the problem. it. He was burning the houses down and the old lady that stood there and refused to leave her books and they burnt the house down with her. He saw this. He was part of it. 
you know, not that he wasn't having internal conflict and, and regret or upset about it, but he was physically doing it. So until he was able to have that change of mindset or that change of snap you out of it, <laughs> do the three slaps across the face real fast and say snap out of it um, by Clarice, you know, wouldn't we as the reader be really upset with him, but I don't feel like I've ever seen a a circumstance where somebody got really upset at Guy, like, why didn't you step in and do something? Instead, it was, well, thank goodness he snapped out of it. Yeah, again, born out of love. So we're not seeing this massive, we're not seeing a massive, let's burn everything down kind of fight club destruction scene like Fahrenheit has at the end, yet there is change. It's just a more personal change. So here's my question for you. Is nobility civil? Because the Count spends a lot of time and he's become this icon of civility. And there's a lot of other people talk about the book and just cherishing the, the Count's civility. But we also have the story, which actually was my probably my favorite part in the whole novel. I'm not sure what that says about me. But <laughs> when he kills the sister's boyfriend, which was really... That whole story was so incredibly disturbing and calculating. But he kills the sister boyfriend because he had slighted him in some way. So the sister's boyfriend takes this really horrible, icky revenge against the sister. So they have a duel. Is having a duel over your honor civil? You're still killing somebody. Is that because that, well, again, is that what, what was norm there or ex? of somebody in a noble situation that that's how you handle his things. role that's the his count's role. role and that's his manlyhood or his um alpha alpha, alpha status dis- yeah alpha distinction and status i'm i don't know i so don't know it goes back to what i was saying originally that the count's view of the world is rooted in his nobility is that a comfort for him i don't uh, maybe but i think that on the flip side he didn't, you know, he went along with it when they came and they moved all of his possessions out of his cushy suite and put put him into basically a clothes closet, a cleaning closet. And you know what I mean? And, and just took a few things with them. And he didn't argue that he didn't fight it. He held his head up high. And he said, Okay, let's go mastering his circumstances, yeah, which I, mean, I think is a beautiful idea that don't let your, you know, fly where you're, you're planted or grow where you're planted. Right. Because I think that if he was, you know, rigid in his nobility with that, he would have fought that he would have fought them and said, do you know who I am? You know, and and you can't do this to me. And he would have fought that literally not even said that to them, just challenged them to a duel or tried to take them out. But he didn't he knew he, he didn't have that power. He didn't have that. So he had to adjust to his circumstances because he didn't have that ability to depend on his nobility. I think the novel also really explores this idea of identity really well, which we've talked about before, and how identity had flip flopped him in the two ways, the two sides of his identity helping him. So the first time with his buddy, and it's his friend that writes the poem, the revolutionary poem, but the Count takes responsibility because of his identity and status. Maybe status would be more accurate this time. His status as nobility, he knows he's not going to get in trouble. And then the flip-flop of that is his status as a revolutionary poet keeps him from being murdered, you know, or executed as an enemy of the state. So I thought that was a really interesting flip-flop on on what the book was saying about identity yet once again. I think so too. On a on a completely kind of different note here real quick, I have a question for you. I want Did you think that the book felt claustrophobic? No, because he was able to explore so many different spaces. One of the things I loved about the book 
was this game that he and Sophia comes and again Sophia another impetus for change out of born out of love he and Sophia are able to just explore all of these different areas again looking at it with new eyes and you know it's the game it's that exploration that ends up hurting her I I think that one of the things that stood out to me really cool was that um not only did it not feel claustrophobic, but I think that it was brilliant how under the circumstances, the hotel basically becomes another character in itself. Yeah. Oh, beautifully. Absolutely beautifully done. And you do, you just get these explorations of these different environments and the people in them and the people in them and how they are just personifications of that environment. It was, it was gorgeous, gorgeous words. And I love the way that in The Gentleman of Moscow, you really get a sense of understanding who this character is and what his life was like before while he's talking to his friends. And I feel like this book was one that is different than other books that I've read because rarely do you find a book that makes you think about history and it gives you insight into different things like even movies like he talked about Casablanca and it made me want to immediately go and rewatch Casablanca just to see what was he quoting there what was he bringing up and that the quotes that that the count used throughout the books I'll remember them yeah I'll have those that I'll reference and I'll be able to you know quote and all kinds of different other situations I think The Gentleman of Moscow is a book that truly sticks with you and it's so well written that it makes you feel like you're having an amazing conversation with somebody so smart that you would just love to sit down and have a cup of tea with them and have that kind of experience of learning about what his vision and his experiences have been in life and it sounds so funny to say that because for a lot of it He's just been trapped in this hotel talking to all kinds of other people. But I think that's where he has done Maybe a beautiful... Maybe that's the more important things in life. Yeah. Like, no matter where you are, people come across your way and you're presented with opportunities to be able to really learn something from somebody else because of experiences that they've had. And if somebody's willing to sit down and share those with you, absorb it. And I think the Count really does represent love. He loves. He is loved and he loves. And in the end, what more can we ask than that, really? I don't think there's much else you could ask for. <laughs> well, we want to hear from you. Please go to our Twitter account at Book Club Justice, where we hope to engage in a lively discussion with all of you online and share our highlights in our next episode. For our next episode, we want you to think about some things here. Think about burning books, destroying nature, suppressing your thinking, consume, hate, not love. And above all, don't ask yourself, are you happy? Because in our next episode, we're going to be talking about Fahrenheit 451. After Fahrenheit 451, our next month's books will be Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. And Kimberly and I are big, huge fangirls of, of Malcolm Gladwell. Big time. Versus The Great Gatsby, which happens to be one of my favorite, favorite, favorite books. And you might wonder, why are we comparing those two books together? How are we going to juxtapose those? And we're going to talk about really focusing on fate versus free will. Next month's podcast will be posted on November 25th and December 9th. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. And happy reading. Ciao, Ciao, bello. Ciao, bello.